Hello there, Alaskans, wherever you are. Welcome to the Must Read Alaska Show. Coming to you from somewhere in Alaska. This is the place where we talk about, you guessed it, Alaska. Where we keep the mainstream media on their toes and where we are standing up for what's right and a world run by leftists. You can find out more by heading over to mustreadalaska.com and also checking out the Must Read Alaska YouTube channel for some really great content. But first, let's get this party started. Welcome, everybody, to the Must Read Alaska show. I'm your host, John Quick, coming to you live from somewhere in Alaska. we got a double header today, folks. If you tuned into us earlier, which I'll be releasing both of these episodes today, you'll got to hear from Alyssa Musto, who's a professional musician. She tours the world singing in front of cruise ship audiences and uh, luxury resort audiences. And then you get the special treat of also hearing from Senator Jesse Keel of Juno. He, now, he has got two things that has happened to him on the Must Read Alaska show that has not happened to anybody else. Number one, he is the most viewed episode in the history of Must Read Alaska. And it's not even the second place is not even close. He beats them almost by 100% the second place person. and. Sadly, he also holds the crown for being the only guest where I actually lost the episode, which is why we don't go live anymore through Zoom, because I, I lost an episode, which was very sad. But Senator, welcome to the Must Read Alaska show. Welcome back. Hey, thanks, John. It's uh, it's great to be back on. Awesome. I have no idea what's up with that most, most viewed episode thing. There's got to be a glitch <laughs> in the software. That's all. I think I need to send you a trophy or something, because I think it's, <laughs> I mean, it's not even a, it's not even close the second place person is off by almost 100 percent. so you're you knocked like a grand slam out of the park with that one <laughs> so uh quest, first question is this remind folks there's going to be folks that listen to this from all over the alaska and probably all over the u.s what area do you represent as a state senator so i've got the northern part of the southeast alaska panhandle and it's the top half of the uh of the panhandle by population so i've got a lot less than half the area i've got the entire city and borough of juno um and then i've got gustavus at the mouth of glacier bay i've got haynes and Klokwan and skagway and if you keep going that direction you're in canada i don't worry about those people <laughs> well what is it like because Everybody else gets to fly in, right? And you like walk down the street <laughs> to go to work. What is it like having that? Because, you know, I, I think in some ways you're one of the only uh, senators who gets what the rest of Alaska um, kind of longs for, and that's access to their uh, senator during session. How's that been? Is there ups and downs? My guess is there's more pluses than minuses. Listen, I'm incredibly fortunate to sleep in my own bed every night, right? Uh, it is work to maintain two households. Um, and we've made that easier recently here in Juneau. Um, some private, nonprofit, charitable folks uh, bought a building. The legislature remodeled that into housing um, for uh, uh, 33 legislators and staff. Um, so we're, we're trying to make that better every chance we get. Um, but, you know, I um, I have maybe more constituent contact face-to-face -face during session. I would be shocked if I have more constituent contact than my colleagues. We are all melting our cell phones every day. Um, we're on Zoom calls. Uh, you know, my colleagues uh, call into their community councils and Zoom into their uh, assembly meetings and all that stuff. Um, and I can do it down the street. Um, although, same for my folks in, in Haines and Skagway and Gustavus and Klaquan, right? They're, they're not bumping into me in the grocery store tugging on my sleeve. Um, but and then in the interim, of course, we're we're all exactly the same. We're all in our districts seven months of the year, seven months plus, um, and so that that works out just about the same for everybody. Yeah. 
So what what are some of your goals this session, legislative session? Um, I think it's uh, I think it'll be good for folks to hear, you know, the primary listen, watch and reader on Must Read Alaska is conservative, probably Republican. But I also I think it's very important to hear from folks on every in, you know, across the aisle and on every aisle. So what are some of your goals for the legislative session and uh, what does that look like for you this year? So big picture stuff, um, you know, the, unfortunately, I am not seeing a lot of um, a lot of votes among my colleagues to to solve a long term fiscal plan. Um, and and you've watched this for years. Your must read viewers have watched this for years. Right. Everybody wants the piece that's most important to them. We keep trying to do these grand bargains. Um, that, you know, somehow are going to tie Alaska's economy to the revenues that government has to to support the economy by, you know, educating the kids and patrolling the streets and keeping the doors locked on the prisons. Um, and people want a spending cap and people want, um, you know, some a solution to this PFD problem where we can't afford the statute we have now, but we can't have for, put together the votes to change it. So um, all those things at once um, has something for everybody to hate. And it's tough for my colleagues in really tight districts to do that in an election year. Um, but so I'm 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 not going to stop working on it. I'm a little dubious that we're going to make a lot of progress this year. And I hate to say that because um, we should do that. We should make progress for Alaska every year. Um, the the next big items for me, um, neither one has my name on them, uh, but we've got to do something to to stabilize Alaska schools. And we've got to do that for a bunch of reasons. First and foremost, I think, is Alaska's economy. More and more people in this country can live anywhere and do their jobs. And there are so many reasons to want to live in Alaska. Um, but if people don't feel like their kids can get a strong education here, uh, they don't move here. People leave here. Uh, and that's that's a real problem for economic growth, for entrepreneurship, people starting businesses here in Alaska. So, um, you know, it's it's been years and years since we since we took care of the decreasing buying power of a dollar. Uh, we did some one time money last year, um, but but we've got to give our districts the resources to be able to plan and do a good job with the budget. Right. We're going to hold them accountable for their budget slip ups or their budget choices. Uh, sorry, the Juno School District had a major budget slip up. It's on my mind. Um, and let me assure you that the people who directly did it don't work for the district anymore. Um, but. That accountability uh, is part of it. The resources to teach the kids is the other part, you know, and, and there's a lot of conversation about that. Um, I have one big accountability piece that's on my mind, um, and that is our, our homeschool support, our correspondence programs. You know, there's proposals out there to boost the funding that goes into them separately from everybody else. Here's, here's the issue I'm looking at, um, John. When we look at the tests that our school kids take so we can see, you know, what kind of progress is being made, homeschool kids don't take them. Or 10%, 10, 12% of homeschool kids, I think, is the number. The accountability is just gone. We, we don't know if they're doing a good job. They can do the best job. They'd be failing miserably. Before we pump another dollar in there, we gotta we got to address that accountability problem. Um, so then there's one other um, that I want to get to this session. And this is a big one. And it's unusual, I think, on your show, maybe. But we've got to bring a pension back for people who do public sector work in Alaska. And, and let me put this just in economic terms, right? I'm not going to talk about how dearly we love all our public servants, although I do. I want to talk about economic terms. Right now, the economically smart choice for anybody who starts working in police, fire, fish biology, wastewater plant operating, you name it, but stuff that we just, we got to have governments to do. Um, 
the economically smart choice is to work a few years in Alaska and go to literally any other state in the union. Take your experience, come in up on their pay scale. Everybody else in the union, every single other state has either a pension or you can earn Social Security. And you can have a little retirement security when you are ready to be done working at the end of your career. Alaska is the only one that offers neither. And we see it in the turnover. And let me just talk for two seconds about the cost of turnover, right? From the time a state trooper puts their um, notice in and says, I'm going away, um, and you start recruiting for that position, to the time they are on their own driving a patrol car with a badge and a gun, you're spending about $220,000. Now, that's the treasury, right? Uncle Sam doesn't pay a share of that. Look at your local police department. It's anywhere from 180 to 200,000 for your local police department. State of Alaska is not paying for that. That's your property taxes, your sales taxes if you got them where you live. You're paying for that. Now do it for teachers. It's about $25,000, $27,000 to replace a teacher. All right, that's about a 50-50 split, state and local. Again, it's your tax dollars. So what's the difference between having a pension and not? Well, the state's actuaries looked at this. They looked at all the numbers. They crunched literally every human being. Your turnover in every given year class, apples to apples, is two to three times higher without a pension as it was with a pension. You are spending a heck of a lot of money just throwing it down a hole on turnover. So uh, we've got to get our hands around that to have efficient government at the state level and at the local level. We all have the same pension system here in the state of Alaska. So your local government is paying for it too. So why do you think to to one of your kind of points um, early on of this kind of not really wanting folks to come up with long-term fiscal plans. Why do you think that is in Alaska? Why do you think that it's something that honestly both sides of the aisle talk about, but have a hard time coming up with solutions? It's, it's just humans, right? I mean, we all want and need the services. We need a trooper to come or a police officer to come when we call 911. Um, we need a school for the kids or for the neighbor's kids. If, uh, you know, if they can't homeschool their own, we, we got to have them to have a society, uh, all that stuff. Um, but you know, this is my wallet. It's not yours. I do not smile when I fill out my tax forms on April 15th to uncle Sam, or, uh, when I look at that, that, uh, mortgage, uh, thing and it's got the escrow payment, that's got money to my local government and property. I don't, I don't grin. Do we need it? Yeah, we need it. Um, so if you're going to take more out of my wallet, I got words for you. Um, and and so doing the balancing, right? What are we going to do so that we stabilize the revenue and we can do efficient but effective government? It's got to be both, right? Um, and then, you know, I have conversations with my colleagues. They want to spending cap at today's level. Today's level, we got a $1.4 billion deferred maintenance problem just on the university. Just the university, which are state buildings. Then you get to all the rest of the state buildings, billions more. Well, today's spending levels, we're putting, I think the governor's proposal sums to like $70 million into maintenance. You you get behind, further behind. Our, our spending level today, it, it, stuff's going to collapse. And our schools don't have the funding they need. So if we just decide that today is exactly the right level of spending and it shouldn't go up, uh, we got a time bomb ticket. We got a problem. Yeah, one of the things that I think is a a key to having maybe some success 
with what you talked about is school districts figuring out how to have a good relationship with homeschool communities. I think that that's super important. We saw, you know, here on the Kenai Peninsula Borough, historically, that has not been a great relationship. We have a kind of new superintendent the last three years. His name is Clayton Holland, and he's done a phenomenal job of bridging that gap and helping homeschool families feel connected to a school district. Um, Do you think that's part of a solution of of kind of like bridging a gap to folks that otherwise have really had not much to do with public schools um, in, you know, past years and years and years? It's, it's just going to have to be, right? We we need the opportunity for folks in Alaska. Look, my wife and I homeschooled our kids for a while, right? And initially, we did it on our own, no allotments, no public curriculums. We had things we wanted to do. Our kids did not take the standardized test. As soon as we took an allotment dollar, our kids showed up on testing day, right? That's part of the drill. But that shouldn't be a fight. That shouldn't be, you know, combat. That should just be part of the whole system. And then when our kids needed math help that we couldn't give, you can be one step ahead of your kids on some things when you educate them, not math, right? We needed pros to do the math when it was past what we could do, 100%. So we had our kids do various public school options. We did some blending, right? We've got neighbors where mom and dad both work multiple jobs. They they can't homeschool kids. It's not going to work. Right. That's the only way they can keep the roof over the head and the and the, the food on the table and the car running. So we've got to have strong neighborhood public schools for them too. It if that's if that's battle royal between neighborhood schools and families that choose to homeschool, we're we're in trouble. If that's a system that and you know, there's gonna be bumps and lumps, whatever, but if that's a system that tries to get every kid their education they need and their family needs at the time and the place they need it. I tell you, then we're doing good. So what are your thoughts on um, the governor's, uh, I think the governor currently also has a a bill that gives teachers a um, kind of a lump sum bonus. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that holds any traction or weight to the stuff you're talking about? Um, you know, I think I talked really about turnover, right? Turnover costs. Um, I, I think it'll help. I don't think it's the most efficient or effective way to spend the dollar, but it's it's not the end of the republic if we do that. It's a lot of money. The governor's proposal is $58 million bucks a year. And I had a colleague who asked a very pointed question at the time when the conversation seemed to be that bonus money or money to districts. He said, how do you retain a teacher if you give them a bonus and a pink slip on the same day? Right. That doesn't work. So you're going to have to, you know, keep the school district running and to have a teacher working in it to get the bonus at the end of the year. But, um, you know, the there's no question that Alaska's teacher salaries are lagging and we can fix the pension system. But if you're making more elsewhere, well, people will only stay so long for a smaller benefit um, because they got a smaller salary. So, you you know, complex situations complex answers. You, you have to do a piece of both. So um, we're going to need to keep the lights on at the schools. We need to keep the teachers. If the governor's bill um, gets some tweaks, I think it, it, does, it does put the cash directly in the pocket. Now, we got a lot of the people who work at districts, some of whom are paid okay and some of whom are underpaid. I'll just be frank with you. Um, we got a lot of paraeducators who sit across the table from a special ed kid in that classroom, teachers up front. And when the kid gets lost, the paraeducator gets them back on track and they can go forward with all their classmates. 
there's no bonus for them, right? So, so I got a couple of concerns. There are ways to make this work. I think I think we can weave that governor's proposal in with the other things we need to do this year, um, and not break the whole bank. Nice. So shifting gears a little bit, let's talk about energy. It's one of the things that pays the bills here in Alaska. Um, you know, we recently had a cold spell. I think Anchorage saw negative 30 something here on the peninsula. We saw negative 20 something. Fairbanks was negative 50 something. Does this put some pressure on lawmakers or um, oil folks to come up with some long term solutions? Uh, because, you know, what I saw was um, elected officials asking their cities to, you know, turn down the temps and put on a coat. And um, I think that that's a, a, a prudent thing to do in times like that, but that's not a long-term solution. What What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you, you know, the rail belt right now, especially South Central part of the rail belt um, has some serious challenges uh, and, and you have short-term needs, right? You store gas in the summertime uh, to bring more of it out at once in the coldest parts of the winter, both to make your electricity and to heat your houses in hot water. Uh, and as I understand it, one of those storage wells was starting to make sand mm -hmm. uh, along with gas. That is a bad sign. Um, and, and that is not something we're going to solve uh, <laughs> uh, in one year. So um, I, I am concerned about South Central energy. Uh, and and I, I will tell you, it's a little disappointing, right? We have about $100, $120 million of subsidy for South Central Gas have had for years. The governor's got a bill to subsidize it more. Um, we'll look at that bill. Uh, I, I think best case scenario, it's five, eight years out from making a difference. Um, and, and frankly, there's people elsewhere in the state who, who have some concerns about, about, you know, just telling one region, well, don't worry about the costs anymore. Um, the rest of the state will shoulder that for you. But nobody wants to see Anchorage Kenai and a little piece of Matsu shiver in the dark either. So we're going to figure something out. I... I think the biggest question we're going to answer, John, is going to be how much of that goes on the rates, so you pay it in your bill, and how much of that is the state going to pick up. Yeah. Um, and so I I don't know. I'm just going to confess to you. I don't know the right answer for South Central Gas in the next uh, two years, three years. Um, as we get longer term, though, you did say long term. So now I'm going to I'm going to ride a hobby horse for a second. There's some money from the federal, I think it's the Inflation Reduction Act, one of the two federal infrastructure bills. And it is going to pay a big chunk of taking some of the bottlenecks out of your electrical grid. And the governor's got a bill, and I haven't read it, but the, so I support the concept 100% to go to a single rate to use the transmission lines up and down the rail belt. So if you guys on the Kenai Peninsula can make the cheapest power, Fairbanks doesn't have to pay Homer Electric and, you know, whatever the Kenai one is and Chugach and Matsu before and maybe Copper Valley or somebody before they can get those kilowatt hours in Fairbanks. One rate, whether you're making the kilowatt hours in Matsu and Solomon Anchorage or making them in Homer and Solomon Fairbanks. If you can do that, one rate, and that, by the way, that's how the rest of the country does it. I mean, everyone else in the country. Um, so if you can do that, then wherever you can make the most efficient kilowatt hour, you can wheel it to whoever needs it. That's going to do huge amounts of good long-term, right? 
it's going to help us bring on renewables all up and down the rail belt. If somebody's got a super awesome project that's not renewables and they can make super cheap electricity, that's probably what's going to happen. Now, I hope for the sake of the planet, it's more renewables, but the economics are going to be the primary driver of that, right? Not what I dream of. And that's okay. Um, but there are people with plans to do some of that stuff. So um, long term, that's going to help a huge amount with your electricity. Uh, let's just be honest. Brass tacks, most people don't heat with electricity in South Central. Right. So it's not the whole solution, but it's going to be a big, big help. Nice. So um, switching gears a little bit, you, uh, the folks that live in your district rely on the ferry system. You know, there's going to be people listening in on this that um, will, you know, Google Juno and Google, Google Senator Jesse Keel and they'll realize, holy crap, this is a place where you can only get to by plane or by ferry. Talk to me a little bit about the ferry system and how important that is to your folks. Yeah, the ferry system uh, is just part of Alaska's transportation infrastructure for folks in the Panhandle and then throughout Prince William Sound and and actually Kodiak out the chain. Um, big big users too, big uh, dependence on that. And you know, there's places here where you just are never going to build a road or bridge. Um, you know, I think there's a proposal for a road from Juneau to Skagway if you can get through a whole bunch of problems billion dollars without breaking a sweat. It's about mm. 60, I think, eight miles a road. Um, that is a lot of money per mile. <laughs> so uh, we run boats, right? And that that fjord that you run, that that boat runs up and down, there's places where it's 350 fathoms deep, right? You, you're not putting pilings down there to cut a bridge across it, right? Same deal when you want to get over to Baranoff Island where Sitka is. So you, you just have to have that maritime infrastructure that you can put a car on, put a van full of freight on. Now we're back to the economy, right? Look, this is cr critical for families, for school groups and teams to get around, whatever. But ultimately, it's about the economy. It's about moving commerce and freight um, and, and being able to get that stuff in and out of our of our communities. So um, you just, uh, you know, it would be um, if a person wanted to spend some real time on this, look at Cordova's economy before they had regular ferry service and after they had regular ferry service. Bigger population more businesses, more tourism, right? I mean, just more prosperity on the private sector side because they got the infrastructure to get people in there every week, all summer long and through into the winter, right? So it's huge. Um, and it's a piece of the whole picture for the state of Alaska. Ferry systems digging out of a hole. We didn't maintain the ships for a very long time. They are older than anybody in the private sector runs boats. And we've crossed a point where it makes any sense to keep throwing cash into their maintenance. So we are starting to replace. Yeah, we're probably 25, 30 years behind on this. We're finally starting to do it. And again, I'm going to thank the federal infrastructure law because it's helping out a huge amount with the money. Um, but the first boat will replace is the Tustamina, which runs Homer to Kodiak and out the chain. There's some big water out there, John. Right? Yeah, big, that boat big, gets big waves, pumped. more bigger waves than I'd ever want to be on. <laughs> yeah, thank you, no. But again, <laughs> I live where I live and they live where they live and they're Alaskans, right? So then we'll start replacing the mainliners that run from Bellingham, Prince Rupert up, you know, through all southeast to Skagway's the northernmost stop, right? Uh, some of the boats we have making that run now are older than I am. I will point you to the color in the beard and the hairline, <laughs> right? 
I'm hitting my prime. Steel hulls and salt water, they are worn out. So we're in that process, um, and, and we have uh, some good new leadership at the Marine Highway System. They are making smart changes um, to make it a more efficient, more effective system, which is, you should always be working on that, right? Um, it's all, it's great. I love it, but nothing welts faster than laurels if you're resting on them, right? <laughs> That's how you crush those leaves into pulp and you end up with nothing. So they are doing a good job. I don't agree with every decision they make, but maybe that's a good thing that the politician doesn't steer them. I, I mean, I wish they'd agree with me more, but, um, they've got an eye toward the long-term future of that system and trying to make it work as well as it can, uh, for as few dollars as they can. So talk, let's talk about another ship, cruise ships. You know, during COVID, I think it was, um, you know, it was hard on Juno. You know, tu tourism is a big thing for the Juno area in the summer months. Cruise ships are in and out of there all the time with thousands of people coming off and spending money in Juno and cruise ships, you know, helping with uh, taxes and whatnot. Has Juno bounced back? Talk to me about this last summer and how good it was for Juno. Yeah, the, the cruise tourism economy, I think, it has, has bounced back. Um, and they are they are bringing ships. Those ships are full. We uh, we didn't set a record this year. We set a record the year before that. Before COVID, we were setting records every year. Now you're right. It was rough um, when you couldn't sail, but folks are coming. Um, and and an interesting thing is that a significant chunk, depending on whose estimates you hear, it's anywhere from ten to twenty percent of those people come back to Alaska again as independent travelers, right? I can't remember the number. The average cruise tourist spends like 160 or 170 bucks a day when they're in Alaska. Now they got a couple of days at sea, so it's you know a little more concentrated in the ports. Um, but it's it's kind of the brown bear model of an economy when you're on the cruise tourism, right? When they're here, you're gorging, right? You get fat and then you gotta try and survive the winter. Um, people who come back as independent travelers are staying in a hotel, they're often running a car, they're eating more in the restaurants. Um, so those people are spending more in a wider variety of the businesses. Again, it's still seasonal. Um, we're working on wintertime tourism, but that's going to take a minute. The, the number I believe we're at is 1.6 million cruise passengers through both Juneau and Skagway wow. every year. That is a tremendous number. So what they're doing, they're stretching the season a little bit. We're starting to get some ships coming in April when it's still a little chilly. And this year we actually had ships coming into October where the weather mm. sometimes is not optimal in Southeast Alaska, by which I mean this, this October was beautiful, but typically October it's 37 degrees and raining uphill because the wind's blowing that hard. <laughs> yeah, the wind's so going there is a question. Here, here's where I'm going with that. There is a question about whether the passengers are going to start having less than a great time with the density in the peak of the season and the weather in the shoulder season. We want people who come here to have a good time, right? Business owners want that. If they're spread out enough that they're not feeling crowded and crammed, locals aren't feeling the pinch too, right? Everybody does better that way. So Cruise communities in Southeast Alaska are really looking hard at what can we do for infrastructure, what can we do for timing and planning to spread out the tourists a little more so that locals don't feel pinched, right? We, we decrease the negative impacts that come with the positive, you know, business and jobs and tax revenue. Um, and, and I will tell you something new and interesting. Since COVID, 
the cruise industry has come to the table in a way, a bigger way than we saw before to work with communities on that. Um, have we solved all our problems yet? You'll be shocked to hear no. <laughs> but um, there's more cooperation and more willingness to, to give and take um, in communities and with the industry on that, which I think is going to just benefit everybody going forward. That's awesome. So um, one of the local issues there in Juneau, uh, not just recently, but seems like in the past while is Telephone Hill. Um, lots of local uh, thoughts on what should be done there. And I, I think um, we talked about it a little bit last time you're on, but remind folks, um, you know, kind of what's on the table with Telephone Hill and give us your thoughts on where do you think it's going to end up? So Telephone Hill, um, you know, is, a, is sort of a point of rock in downtown Juneau. Um, it got its name because that's where the, the first telephone exchanges were. I don't know first in the state, but definitely the first here. Um, and uh, short version of a long story. Back <laughs> in the 80s, um, the homes on Telephone Hill, it was residential then, um, were taken by eminent domain. And the plan was to build Alaska's glorious new state capitol building there. That has not happened. Right. We have done some seismic upgrades and retrofits and exterior modernization on this old federal territorial office building that is our state capital and is going to remain our state capital. Right? I mean, I think we're not going to put a quadrillion dollars into a new edifice. Um, so um, and, and, you know, it was private property, became public property. and The public didn't do the thing. It, it was time to for the state to stop owning it. And believe it or not, we were renting it um, to people who, some of whom uh, had owned those homes. They were taken by eminent domain, and then they rented, from the, rented them from the state. So it was time to clear um, this from state ownership. And so the state has transferred that to the city and borough of Juneau, which was involved in the 80s thing. And the city, their commitment was they're going to have a full public process to decide what to do with it. So there are people who say historic preservation, those homes are 120, 100 and some odd years old. Um, there are people who say redevelopment, let's go sky high with glorious office and condo and re retail. And uh, there are people with every idea in between. And so the city is going through this process with a lot of, as you might imagine, very strong public comment on yeah. it. <laughs> Lots um, of strong is, opinions. <laughs> yeah, that's the first issue I've ever seen that on, right? Oh, no, wait. Um, and so, um, you know, I think what we're likely to see um, is some combination of uh, probably the most historic um, structure up there, the old telephone exchange, uh, the building that that's in. I, I'm guessing here, right, probably uh, preserved maybe in, in museum-like status, but you're also probably going to see um, a combination of new office, new residential um, I'm hearing that maybe not hotel, which would be, I don't know, I thought there'd be hotel just given the tourism and the seasonal impacts here. But again, uh, my role in this was very clear. I moved it from state ownership to the city and I got an ironclad commitment. They were going to have a full public process, right? Nobody had decided what to do with this thing yet. Since then, I have stepped back to watch the public and the local electeds figure this out because otherwise... You know, when I when I get involved at that level, it starts to look like political pressure. And so yeah. I'm just I'm out of that one. Um, I'm excited to see what what comes of it and what happens. I think um, for a tiny little piece of land in downtown Juneau, it's got a huge amount of potential. That's awesome. So um, 
30, gosh, it's almost been uh, 40 minutes now. It's gone by in a flash. Any last minute thoughts here before we head out, um, Senator? Floor is yours. You know, um, we're early in the session. We're off to a zip of a start, right, with a lot of flash about um, education, which may take a while to work through, um, and, and some of the budget things. Uh, it looks like with the price of oil staying up, we're, we've still got some money. We balanced the budget with a little surplus last year. We should be able to do that again this year. Um, interesting thing, right? Our oil taxes now are based on the net, not the gross. So now that they're building Willow and Pica, um, a bump in oil prices means almost flat revenue, not a bump in revenue, because they're deducting Willow and Pica build expenses from the rest of their oil taxes. I don't know if all Alaskans realize that, but um, we're not super flush with cash because the price of oil's up. Um, development is actually taking a piece of that. Means jobs. Um, we just need to know what else it means at the same time. Um, so, so don't look for uh, us to be rolling in the fat in state government here this year. Uh, but we've got some real needs we need to deal with, uh, and and I'm hopeful that we'll be able to get to that. Um, you know, the big question always um, with Governor Dunleavy is do we get the guy who, who will collaborate with you or do we get the guy who sits back uh, with a veto pen at the end and just waits for stuff to come to him? He can get a lot more done working with people. Um, and he's tried both. So uh, I'm I'm always hopeful that we're going to get the, the Mike Dunleavy who comes to the table and says, wait a minute, that won't work, but let's try it this way and then we can all get somewhere. Right. Um, that's something for your uh, viewers to keep an eye on, listeners to keep an ear on, uh, John, yep. as this session progresses. Awesome. Well, Senator, I really appreciate you coming on. I think it's this fun. Is your, Thanks, John. This is your third time on and you're welcome back. Anytime I'll put a link in the description uh, to your Senate page so people can check you out that are listening from the lower 48 and want to check out a senator from Juneau. Uh, for folks that listen, watch, read, must read Alaska, I want to thank you for doing that. If you want to help keep the lights on, just go to mustreadalaska.com. On the right-hand side, there's a little donate button. Or if you want to sponsor the Must Read Alaska show, just email me, John, J-O-H-N, at mustreadalaska.com. Senator, thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome back anytime. And until